if you're reading in your reading plan and you're in Leviticus 19 and you're, you're reading all of these instructions and you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm supposed to be shepherding my heart with rules and regulations about some pretty obscure things. There's some very reasonable things as you're reading, you're looking at it thinking, I can relate to that. And then you find some pretty, pretty obscure things and you're thinking, how do I shepherd my heart as I read it? Do I just read past it? Do I just... So let's go to Leviticus 19 and take a look at some of the things in there. And then we'll look at a principle that we want to use uh, to, that helps us shepherd our heart as we're doing this. So you've got your reading plan out and it says, today you're reading Leviticus 19. And uh, what I want you to do is notice that there are some, some verses in here. God is giving a lot of instructions. You see imperatives here. Do this, do this, and do this. Uh, verse 2, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, Yahweh speaks to Moses, and he says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Then he starts giving specific instructions. Verse 3, he says, Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father. You should keep my Sabbath. You're thinking, okay, that's good. Um, do not turn to idols. Okay, I can work with that. That's good. That makes sense. Offering sacrifices. Okay, that's going good. You get to verse 6. Uh, your sacrifice shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. Okay, this is getting a little bit different. Um, it's still the word. It's still inspired. This is really important. You read on, and it gives instructions about the land in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of the land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. I work in an office. I write software, or I sell insurance, or I do whatever. Um, okay, uh, you shall not steal or deal falsely. Okay, that's good. I can relate to that. Flip the page. You shall not swear falsely by my name. Okay, good. And you see this mixture. And you keep reading and you see things that, that seem like they speak to us today. And you see other things that seem like they don't. You get down to verse 27. You shall not round off the side growth of your beards, nor harm the, edge, harm the edges of your beard. Oh, okay. I shave every couple days. How does that relate to me? So you keep reading. What I want to show you here is, is what God is doing. When you're reading this, a couple of principles we want to keep in mind. First of all, this is what God has given as his law to Israel. This is what God gave to Israel. That's the first thing we want to understand. God didn't give this to everybody. This is the law that God gave to Israel. You see that in verse 2. Speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel. This is what is to be heard and understood and followed by Israel. First thing we need to keep track of is that this was given to Israel. Second thing we need to keep track of is that some of this was carried forward into the New Testament. And those things are the things that are reiterated by Jesus and by the writings in the New Testament. You'll see Jesus' teachings on marriage and divorce and adultery in the New Testament. And what they are is, is a repeating and actually a strengthening of what's in the Old Testament. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you have heard it was said, he's referring to the Old Testament law, and he gives an example of the law, and he said, but I tell you, and he takes that law and he intensifies it and he raises the bar. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I've told you that, I'm telling you that if you even look at a woman with lust for her, you've committed adultery in your heart. So what we, we see is that there are things in the Old Testament law that are carried forward in the New Testament to the New Testament. We see that in, in the teachings of Jesus, and we also see it in the writings in the New Testament. So as you're reading this, um, you, you think, okay, not all of this carries forward. Some of this was written very specifically for Israel and their behavior and their relationship with the Lord as a nation, as a people in the land of, of Israel. But as you look at chapter 19, you'll see something that, that's repeated over and over and over and over again in chapter 19. And you'll see it in, in lots of other chapters when you're reading law sections like this. And that is the phrase, I am Yahweh. God wanted Israel to know, I am Yahweh. He says to them, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I, Yahweh, am holy. He says, don't turn to idols. In verse 4, I am Yahweh, your God. I'm Yahweh, your master. He says, um, verse 10, glean your harvest, gather fallen fruit of your vineyard. Why? I am Yahweh. So here's what God is saying. He's saying, you, Israel, are in a relationship with me that is unique unique from all the other peoples of the world in that time, in that age. And I want the rest of the world to see me by the way you conduct yourself. And he gives them 
areas that, like we mentioned, we saw here, areas that carry forward that we think are very reasonable and very very acceptable in a, in a broader situation, not just Israel. But he had things that were very unique and very specific to Israel, the things that distinguished them from all the other people groups of the world. There are instructions, I believe, in this chapter that have to do with not mixing garments when you're wearing two different kinds of clothing. There are instructions in this chapter about not sowing different kinds of seed in a field. And we would look at that and we would say, well, why would that matter in your relationship with God? What God had in mind for Israel was that he wanted the rest of the world to come to see him. And the the primary way in which the rest of the world came to know God was through Israel and the way that Israel dealt with God and was regulated by God. They had regulations of what they would wear, where they could travel, what they could eat, when they could eat it, how they could live, how they could conduct their business, how they handled the poor and the orphan and the alien. All of it was designed so that it would put God on display. They had one God. He says, I am Yahweh, your God. The rest of the nations around them had multiple gods. Israel was unique because they had one God. They had the God. And so God's design for giving this law to Israel, one of his designs was so that all of the nations around them could see God in the way that Israel lived their life differently. They would notice the way that Israel dressed. They would notice the way Israel lived and they conducted business and how they they lived on their land. And all of it was unique from the people around them so that Israel would have an opportunity to say, let me tell you about my God. So when you're reading these chapters, and you've got lots of law here, you've got lots of instructions, and it's pretty easy to get lost when you're reading, and you're reading a couple of chapters, and you've got to get through 50 or 60 verses in one day or something. Um, one of the things that really helps you care for your own heart as you, as you read this is you step back and you just say, what is God saying about himself? And you'll see it over and over again here in this chapter. He says, I am Yahweh. In the beginning of the chapter, he says, not only am I Yahweh, but I am holy. I'm separate. I'm separate from you. I'm not like you. I'm not contaminated by you. Anything like that. So when you're reading your, your Bible, you're, in, you're sitting down with your Bible, you've got it open, and you're in a passage like this or a section of Scripture like this, it's really, really helpful to just step back and say, what is the Lord showing us about himself? Okay. So remember that and keep that in mind. And... Um, Uh, hopefully that can help you shepherd and care for your own heart as you lead your household and as you head into whatever ministry the Lord has for you. Discipline 1, Biblical Repentance. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. God is so kind uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 to give us a description of what genuine repentance looks like. Um, it's a very specific situation that happened. It's a very specific kind of offense that took place. It's a very specific repentance, therefore, that's being described. It's not Paul saying, you know, let me, uh, I've been thinking about repentance lately. Let me just kind of describe what repentance in general looks like. That's not what he's doing. He's very much rooted in a specific situation, and he is seeing repentance um, before his, his very eyes uh, through the testimony of Titus, and so we're going to look at that this morning, because we can learn a lot from watching other people repent, and uh, there's so much here for us, and God is just kind to give it to us. Let's pray, and let's ask for his help as we look at his word. The Father in heaven, we want to be men who are known as repenters. Uh, I know I do. And Lord, I pray that you would um, work in our hearts this morning, that you would make our hearts and our minds soft and eager. Uh, make us like a, a sponge ready to absorb what you have for us, Lord, and, and may these truths press down deeply into us so that we become men more and more who um, are not interested in defending ourselves or defending our sin or making excuses or pitying ourselves when we sin, but rather just wanting to repent. Lord, how our wives and our kids and our families would benefit greatly, how this church would benefit greatly if we were men quick to repent of our sin. Most of all, how pleasing it would be to you. It would give evidence of the salvation that you've given us when we turn from our sin. So Lord, we pray that you would meet with us, draw near to us, and glorify yourself as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, three broad kind of things to start off with here uh, at the beginning. You, you've got an introduction, you've got then two points that follow that. In the introduction, just so I can kind of give you the 30,000 foot level view of where we're headed this morning. In the introduction, we're, we're trying to look at the context overall, okay? The, the context of the offense that Paul is talking about, we are trying to get the context of their repentance. As I said just a moment ago, this is not a general just description of what repentance looks like in any particular situation. There, this is a very specific situation that went on, a very specific offense. And then, number one, then we will give a description of that genuine repentance as we look through verses 9 to 11 in 2 Corinthians 7. And then point number two, or the last uh, part, we want to just kind of step out of 2 Corinthians and just think about, okay, how is it that repentance is even possible? How does a believer in Jesus Christ even repent? How, how is it that you're able to do that? Because you're going to be overwhelmed, I think, by looking at the description of repentance, and you're going to think, oh my goodness, how do I even, how does this even happen in me? And so we're going to look at the resources that God has provided for us so that repentance can take place. So let's start with the introduction here. Jump down below those bullet points and get the main idea first. What is the offense that took place? It's the Corinthians actually at some point in the relationship with Paul had had abandoned him. Um, they had an opportunity to stand with him and they abandoned him instead. And they did it at a time when it was um, it would have been absolutely humiliating to Paul. He had come and he had visited them to confront the false teachers, these super apostles that were making a stand against him on his own turf. He had been with them for 18 months uh, and pastored them, planted the church, grown them up in Christ. And then he came back at some point later, as you'll see in a moment, to confront what was going on. And the church primarily did not stand with him, but kept silent. And that was absolutely excruciating for Paul. Um, after all he'd invested. So the Corinthians had abandoned their pastor and apostle when he confronted the false teachers in their presence. Um, so now go back up to the timeline. Here's kind of the history of Paul with the church in Corinth. He stayed in Corinth 18 months on his second missionary journey. That's in Acts 18. It's about AD 51. Paul then ended that second missionary journey and he began his third, and that's where he settled in Ephesus in Acts 19. And he was in Ephesus longer than he was any other place. And this is where the, the context of the letters to Corinth that Paul wrote to Corinth take place while he was staying and, and had his time in, in Ephesus. Third bullet point down, Paul wrote his first letter, and it's, it's a lost letter. We don't have it. Okay, So in other words, what you're going to find out here. Is, as far as we know, Paul wrote, we think, four letters to the Corinthians. Okay, uh, First and second Corinthians do, does not mean that it was the first letter he wrote and the second letter he wrote. It means that it's the first letter we have of his, and we have a second letter of his. Okay, So you're going to see where letters one and two, first and second Corinthians, fit into the four. Now, he may have written more to them, but we know from what he has written in first and second Corinthians that he wrote at least two other letters. Does that make sense? Okay. So Paul wrote his first letter, which we do not have. God did not see fit to um, keep that or put that into the canon of Scripture. And he wrote that letter addressing some sin issues, and he makes reference to that in, his, in the letter we call 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, or verse 9. Uh, he says, I wrote you in my letter. And so we know that there was a letter before 1 Corinthians, and he was addressing specific sin issues. The Corinthians then asked Paul for clarifying questions on what he addressed in that letter. And so they brought those questions to him. And that's when Paul wrote a second letter, which we call 1 Corinthians. And so Paul now is writing his answer to their questions primarily uh, from his first letter. Okay, this is about AD 55. It's happening from Ephesus. At some point after that, and, and who knows what happened. You can, we can speculate, but Paul has some pretty, you know, he has some strong correction in 1 Corinthians for them. And it, it, perhaps there was a, an, an individual who stood up and kind of led a, a bit of a rebellion and said, well, if Paul's an apostle, how much more are we? I mean, look at, look at us guys. I mean, we've got leadership. I mean, we're not repulsive looking like Paul is. and We don't sound funny when we talk like he does. And we're, we're the guys to go after. So there's some kind of a 
false leadership that arises in Corinth um, that Paul finds out about after that first uh, after First Corinthians, the second letter he wrote. He mentions something about that in Second Corinthians eleven. Paul then decided, I just need to go to Corinth, and so he traveled to Corinth um, for a painful visit. And that's mentioned in Second Corinthians chapter two, verse one. And he confronted those false teachers. It was painful. Because that's when he confronted them and the church did not support him. They did not stand with him before those false teachers. And there most likely was a ringleader among them. And there's this guy that Paul keeps mentioning, um, you know, the offender. Uh, Perhaps he was leading the charge against Paul. We don't know exactly specifically. And Paul left there just grieved by the lack of support from the Corinthians. And that's when he wrote a third letter, which we do not have. But that Second Corinthians talks all, a lot about. Um, and he delivered that letter to them by Titus, and we know that that letter caused them great sorrow. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 2. Turn there for just a second. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So this is Second Corinthians. This is his fourth letter that he's written, and he's talking about the third letter he wrote just before it. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, that um, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you would may, might know the love which I have especially for you. So this is what he wrote after he had visited them. Go to chapter 7, verse 8. He says something similar. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. And we'll look more at those verses in a moment. And so Titus delivered that letter, chastised them through that letter, and Titus saw something amazing happen at the church in Corinth. And he came back and he reported to Paul what he saw in the Corinthians. And Paul was comforted by the report. Um, Look at verses 6 again in chapter 7. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So he's come back to Paul from delivering the letter. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. See, that's what he deserved when he went to them, but he didn't get. But now he's got it. So that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. He's a little conflicted about it. Drop down to verse 13. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So Titus, imagine you're carrying Paul's letter to them to let him have it. You read it to them, you instruct them from it, and then he sees them repent. He was comforted. He was refreshed by them. For if anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. Now hold on to that. He received you with fear. Just hold on to that, because we're going to see that in a moment. I rejoice in everything I have confidence in you, Paul says. So now, on the basis of seeing that through Titus, he takes up his pen and he writes 2 Corinthians. And he writes this fourth letter. This is about AD 55 or 56. So four letters back uh, to to Corinth over and over and over in a span of very short, compressed time, just a matter of, of, of matter of years couple years perhaps so the offense again is the corinthians had abandoned their pastor when he confronted the false teachers before them now when paul wrote that third letter that delivered was delivered by titus he had no evidence yet at that point of repentance he knew nothing of any turning in them and it wasn't until titus came back and he learned the effect of his words in that third letter that's lost and he knows that it caused them sorrow we saw that in verses six to eight But there were attitudes that Titus could measure, that he could discernibly see, that indicated they were 
they were repentant and that their relational strife with Paul was coming to an end. And so here is that description of what their solid repentance looked like. Again, these are not distant generalities. Paul's not trying to think, okay, in general, when believers repent, um, what does it look like? No, he's talking about these believers in Corinth over this specific situation, and this is what stood out to him through what Titus said. So 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 11, describes their repentance. Let's look at it in detail. Verse 9, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance, or to the point of repentance, the NAS says. Literally, just you were made sorrowful unto repentance. It was a sorrow that looked to repentance. Okay? Um, i got to find my spot here. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Or you were made sorrowful according to God. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret unto salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold... What earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So there's a description. Let's talk first just about what repentance is. You know this. uh, It is a complete change of mind. That changes not just my thinking, but it changes my attitudes and it changes my behavior completely. Uh, How many degree change is it? How many degree turn is it? It's not 90. It's not 100. It's a 180. If you were going one direction in your thinking and in your thoughts and in your intentions, it is a now, oh my goodness, I was not going just kind of sort of the wrong direction. I was going completely the wrong direction. And it is a turn inwardly, completely, uh, that works itself outward. And the context here has this repentance specifically associated with a once broken relationship that is now mended. And so we get to look in on a very specific kind of repentance. Now, keep this in mind, uh, uh, genuine repentance has two different dimensions to it. It has a vertical dimension and it has a horizontal dimension. Uh, When you sin in your heart and your mind before the Lord and nobody else is impacted by it, um, it is a vertical dimension repentance. But this is a, a repentance that has two dimensions to it. There's a vertical change towards God. You have different thinking about God and you have different thinking about your sin. But you also have, according to them, they have a very different way of looking at the relationship with Paul now. Okay, When you get the vertical change that takes place, you, you will get the horizontal change that needs to come. Okay, You cannot have the horizontal change in relationship or reconciliation where there's been offense unless and until you have the change that happens horizontally. Okay. But what Paul describes here, I believe, is primarily not the vertical. He believes that's taken place because of what he sees horizontally. And so what he is describing is the, 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 the evidences of their repentance that he feels now in their, his relationship with them. And so he's describing a horizontal repentance, a horizontal evidence. Uh, so as we walk through these things, we're not trying to leapfrog over the vertical thing that needs to happen. Paul knows that that has happened because of what he's getting horizontally. Does that make sense? Okay. I think it'll make more sense as we go. So let's now move to number one. My pursuit of repentance includes, and I've got nine things, or is it 11? I forget. Nine. My pursuit of repentance includes, number one, sorrow. That's in verses nine to 10. Actually, back in verse six to 10. God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing. He reported to us your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that it caused you sorrow, though only for a while. 
I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful unto repentance, for you may, were made sorrowful according to God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You see how over and over and over, what is he impacted by based on what he's heard from Titus? They are sorrowful. They, they, are, they are broken by what has happened. Genuine repentance will inevitably involve this emotion. It must. And did you see some of the strange extremes involved where genuine repentance is found? I mean, Paul is saying rejoicing, and he's talking about their mourning, and he's talking about their sorrow. There is a sorrow that you can rejoice over. That's what Paul's doing. It is the sorrow that points to repentance. Listen, sorrow is not the goal. Sorrow is not the destination when you have sinned. Repentance is the goal. Um, I ten or I eight have never has those have never been any one of your guys' destinations. I just want to go to I ten. I, yeah, I just want to go to I eight. No, your goal is the beach in California. But you need I ten or I eight to get there. Those freeways point to the destination. And sorrow is like that. Sorrow is needed if you want genuine repentance. This means it is possible to be sorrowful, but not be truly repentant. And the probably saddest example in Scripture is Judas, who when he realized what he had done in betraying Jesus, he threw the money into the temple and he went out and he wept bitterly and he did not repent. But if you are truly repentant, you will be what? You will be sorrowful. And a great example of that is Peter, who also went out and wept bitterly and repented. And by the way, the difference between the two of them is Jesus, right? Jesus made all the difference. So if you want true repentance, men, it will be sorrowful getting there. It will be. That sorrow unto repentance is the sorrow that God is after. That is the sorrow that God is pleased with. That is the sorrow that is according to God. The sorrow that is unto repentance. That's verse 9. It's the sorrow you experience in genuine repentance. So the goal is not merely to be sad when you have sinned. Okay, The goal is to change. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Scott, can you make a distinction? And I don't know if all these apply as to what aspects of these are vertical and horizontal. Yeah. yeah I, as I walk through, I'll show you. I, I think primarily what he's talking about here is the sorrow that they know they've caused Paul. Okay. I think so. so. This is all. I think it. M my case that I'm going to make for you is that it's all horizontal. Okay. Now this is not then without. Does that mean that they were sorry before God? Well, of course they were. Right. But what is Paul primarily impacted by? He's impacted by not what he could see in their hearts happening vertically, but what he felt in their relationship with them, and that's what he's describing, yeah. I think. And I'll, I'll try to keep making that point as we go through each of these here. Um, so the goal is not sorrow, but the goal is to change. And you will be sorrowful in that repentance. Um, that is the sorrow that operates according to the way that God works. Now, when the world is sorrowful, it is sorrowful usually because it has lost something it loved, right? But God's sorrow, the sorrow of repentance, look at verse 9, it suffers no loss. Um, you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything, and then he adds this, through us. So in his mind, the emphasis here is horizontal. Through us, what we are doing with each other, what we did with you, Titus and myself, and coming to you um, and confronting you, and now you've repented, you suffered no loss through us. We didn't cause any loss in you in this by confronting you. So when a believer repents and is sorrowful, it's not evidence that the believer lost something. You suffered no loss, he says to them. 
I mean, think about it. Paul's rejoicing, and they've only gained. There's no loss. So where there's joy and no loss, that sounds like a good place. I haven't lost anything, and Paul's joyful. Well, guess what? They're sorrowful. Doesn't that seem strange? Like extremes? Like how do these things fit together? How can you be joyful and have no loss and yet be sorrowful? Welcome to repentance. Biblical uh, repentance. Yeah. Are you sorrowful because of the loss of relationship you have with yeah. God? Always. Yeah. So again, let's make this clear. Not denying any of those things. Okay. The question is whether Paul is describing that in this passage. Okay. Theologically, absolutely true. But the question is, what is Paul describing here? And if he's not describing the vertical dimension, it doesn't mean that he's denying it. It just means he's describing the evidences horizontally of what he's experiencing with them. And what determines that? The weight of the context. Okay? And so, yes, absolutely, they are sorrowful before God. You will not truly be sorrowful of the breach in a relationship you have with somebody unless you are sorrowful before God first. And that is what Paul is experiencing, is that they are, they are sorrowful over the breach in their relationship that they did have. Good questions. Scott, I'm sorry. Yeah. This is so helpful for me for dealing with kids. Yeah. The distinction between revenge, causing sorrow for punishment, yeah. versus yeah. causing sorrow for the sake of, I'm willing for you to be upset yeah. with me. Yeah. Because it leads to yeah. uh, you need this is yeah. sin and, and yeah. we need to overcome yeah. that. Right. Yeah, you're gonna I mean think about what Paul did. Paul I mean, how how sad is it when is is it hard to be the guy that have to go, okay, I was sinned against, but I'm gonna go and I'm gonna I'm gonna drag this out into the open. I mean, wouldn't you much rather that they came to their senses and did it? But yet Paul is the one who wrote to them. He went to them, he wrote to them, Titus delivered the letter, and he had to, for them to get to where they needed to be in their relationship, he had to cause sorrow in their relationship. There was no way to get to reconciliation except through that sorrow. Did he want to make them sorrowful? Yeah. No. (laughs) Right? Isn't that what he said? But he knew that it was undeniable, right? So... I tell you, the only way that they would have suffered any loss is if they had not repented. Because then they would have lost their relationship with Paul. They would have lost fellowship with the Lord, obviously. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 explains how there is no loss in the sorrow unto repentance. Look at verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret. Listen, the repentant believer has no regrets in turning from his sin. There's no regret in turning from sin. Listen, there's such a thing as buyer's remorse or buyer's regret, right? There is no such thing as repenter's remorse or regret. Okay, there's no such thing with genuine repentance. In getting true repentance, you have only gained. You suffered no loss. You have no regrets about where you were, uh, where you are now compared to where you were, right? Can, can you clarify that, John? Yeah, in, in terms of what? There's no regret? Yeah. Okay. Because I, re- they, I regret everything. Yes. Yeah, no, there, there is a regret that you have for that, but you don't regret that you've moved. You don't regret that you've come to a better place. Okay? People get caught in their sin and they can't do it anymore and they regret that they can't go back and do it again because they've been caught sometimes. But they just can't go back. But that's not the believer who's genuinely been uh, moved into repentance. There's no regret about where you are now. It produces no regret where you are. Okay? Did they look back? Look, the, the maybe a way to think of it is when they looked back, they were sorrowful at what they did. But as they stand in this new place with their backs on where they are and where they're looking where they're going, they have no regrets about where they are and where they're headed. Do they regret having done what they did to Paul? Yes. That's what the sorrow is. But now this repentance, this change, has produced 
a, um, a repentance without any regret for where they're headed. Okay. So that, that's the law comparing. Yeah. They, they, they have, now, whenever you see that you've suffered no loss, when you come to a place where you've come to your senses, you, you haven't lost anything. You, you gave up sin. You've only gained. You, you, you don't have a regret about still being in sin. You have a regret for what you did to Paul, but you have no regret about being in sin, continue, or not being able to be there. So they could rejoice where they were. They've lost nothing. Now, this is the sorrow, guys, that we want. It's a, it's a sorrow that we can rejoice over. Just think on that. I can be happy, truly joyful about this sorrow. It's a sorrow you can only gain from, and it's a sorrow you'll never lose from. It's a sorrow that you'll never regret. That is the sorrow that you experience in genuine repentance. That is the sorrow that is the sorrow that's associated with the salvation you've been experiencing. Paul says this in verse 10. Look at this. For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret unto salvation. Now, uh, Paul's not saying, I think you guys actually just got converted. Okay, I, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think Paul's just saying this is a repentance that looks to the salvation you've been experiencing. If you're in salvation and you repent from your sin as a saved one, that repentance just points to your salvation. This is a, a repentance unto your salvation that's connected to, that looks to your salvation that you have. This is the sorrow of repentance that points to the reality of their salvation. And the world has its own sorrow, and it is the opposite of this good sorrow. What does he say in verse 10? But the sorrow of the world produces death, and that would be spiritual death, obviously, and including physical death eventually. What is, it, what is the sorrow of the world like? Well, it's, it's sorry it got caught, right? It's sorry for losing its pet sin. And, and in that sorrow, there's no strain of joy in their sorrow like we have. I mean, we have a bittersweet sorrow. It's bitter because it's sorrowful, but we, we can rejoice in it. And there's, so there's sweetness in it. They only have bitter sorrow, no sweetness in it at all. No strain of joy, no sweetness in it. Only regret is in their sorrow. They regret that they can't go back to it. This sorrow is evidence the worldly one lost something, suffered a loss. He suffered the, the loss of the sin that he didn't want to give up yet. And listen, that's a dangerous sorrow. That's a sorrow that is associated with death. So Paul says there's like a blessed sorrow that a believer has. Um, it's one that can bring joy to you and it points to repentance. And then he says here, there's actually a cursed sorrow. A sorrow that actually needs to be repented of. If you're sorry in this way, you need to repent of this sorrow. Some examples of worldly sorrow. Um, I, I thought of like the sorrow of Cain in chapter 4 of Genesis. Grumbling over his consequence that it was too hard to carry. But did he repent of his hatred and murder? No. So he was sorrowful, but not repentant. The sorrow of King Saul Wounded pride, no longer did he have the favor of God upon him, but did he turn from his spiritual defection? No. The sorrow of King Ahab, he wanted desperately that vineyard of Naboth, and uh, couldn't get it, so he went to bed and he cried like a little boy. But did he repent of his coveting? No. But the sorrow of Judas, we mentioned, overwhelmed by his betrayal of the son, he went out and wept bitterly, but did he return to Christ? No. Guys, listen, have no doubt from the record of God's word that there is um, this sorrow of the world and it exists and you have access to it in your own heart. You do. That you can be sorry about your sin but not be repentant. Okay. So when true repentance comes, guys, you'll know it. Because you will have a sorrowful heart that is also joyful to not be going any longer in the sinful direction that you had been going. 
You will have a sorrow that will not regret having turned from your sin. You'll have a sorrow that won't leave you feeling like you lost anything, but you'll only feel rich. You'll have a sorrow that gives you evidence of the salvation that you've actually been enjoying. You'll have a sorrow that is in alignment with God's will. So what are you sorry about then when you are genuinely repentant? Well, you're, let's talk about some of these things that some of you have mentioned. You'll be sorry that your sin tarnished your Savior's name, won't you? You'll be sorry that your Savior suffered greatly in your place on the cross for that sin. It cost him greatly. You'll be sorry that your fellowship with God was obstructed and hindered by your sin. Won't you be sorry for that? You'll be sorry you dishonored his word or his commands. You, in Titus chapter 2, don't want to dishonor the word, but you did through your sin. Won't you be sorry for that? You'll be sorry perhaps that you hurt others and hindered unity and fellowship with them in the body of Christ or in your family. You'll be sorry that you gave unbelievers cause to mock God and his salvation. Like when David gave the Gentiles reason to blaspheme, would that make you sorry that that happened? This kind of sorrow suffers no loss when sin is turned from. This sorrow has no regrets about having turned from sin. This sorrow points to genuine salvation. Now, Paul turns then to describe this sorrowful repentance. Look at verse 11. For... Behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Now he's going to describe it even some more. And Paul, again, he's not ignoring the vertical evidence or the vertical dimension of genuine repentance. He's not neglecting it, but he's mostly interested in describing the horizontal evidences of their repentance, which restored their relationship. This is what he felt the most. And when Paul on each one of these in verse 11 says, what earnestness, what vindication, and he repeats again, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what he's doing is he's picking up each one of them one at a time. He says, what earnestness? And he sets it down. What vindication? And he sets it down. What indignation? And he just picks up each one and he's just stunned by each one of them. So again, this is not a 30,000 foot flyover. I think this is the way Scott described it in his... Uh, lesson when he taught this before. But this is Paul walking through the garden of repentance and looking at one plant after another plant after one fruit after another. He is stunned by what he sees. He isolates each one, pauses, and we can gaze upon it. Now, there's overlap between, there's, there's a lot of overlap between each one of these. Uh, it's a piling on of terms because you're looking at one thing. You're looking at repentance. And so each one of these is going to reflect repentance and each one of them is going to sound like the other because you're describing the same thing so you'll see a lot of overlap all right so my pursuit of repentance includes first sorrow number two earnestness look at verse 11 Um, for behold what earnestness this very thing this godly sorrow has produced in you and this is very likely an umbrella uh, idea over the rest of them this kind of casts its flavor over the rest Um, Why is this a horizontal earnestness and not a vertical earnestness that they for sure would have had? Because even look back up in verse, oh, I'm sorry, look down in verse, what is it, uh, 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. I want you to know about your earnestness towards me. So I think Paul is describing that earnestness. He picks that up and says, what earnestness do you have? Or that was produced in you. Uh, The word means to be eager and active. They once, at one point in the relationship with Paul, they were unable to move. They couldn't be moved to defend Paul. They were unconcerned to move to defend Paul. They believed lies about him. They were inactive then at that point. They were not eager to defend him. But now they are. They're actively eager toward him and toward their relationship because they are repentant. They are eager and they are active to straighten this whole thing out. 
They are earnest to resolve the matter, to resolve their offense. They are earnest for what is right. Whatever had them hesitant and not willing to move towards Paul, that's gone. Now they're earnest. This idea carries not um, an idea of of a one and done thing. It's not a burst. It's not a flash in the pan. But this is a sustained activity of earnestness to move in the right direction that they are now pointed in. Uh, Pointed to earnestness reveals repentance. To claim repentance but have no activity, to, to claim to be repentant but be spiritually lethargic towards the relationship that's been broken, that that's a repentance to be suspicious of because you will be moved to active eagerness. Number three, my pursuit of repentance includes vindication. Vindication, verse 11. He says, what vindication of yourselves? Isn't that interesting? It's the idea of clearing themselves of the guilt of their lack of defense of Paul. It's the idea of clearing themselves of uh, their defection. They wanted to remove the stigma of their guilt and their blame. Okay. Now, sometimes people like to vindicate themselves by lying. I didn't do that. Or by denying what they did. Um, by defending themselves. But this isn't what they did. This is like a son who's eager to clear himself before his dad. Not by lying, not by defending, not by denying what he did, but by going humbly through confession of sin. By humbly acknowledging their wrongdoing. We were wrong. And the only way to vindicate yourself when you're actually guilty is through acknowledging your guilt and letting God cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And demonstrating that you're now going just the opposite direction. So vindication reveals repentance. How could you be truly repentant but not want to clear your offense? Okay. Number four, my pursuit of repentance includes indignation. Indignation. Verse 11, what indignation? That's a, that's a pretty strong word, right? Uh, it means they were outraged. Well, outraged over what? Um, outraged over their own sin against Paul. Why would Paul extol an outrage they had towards somebody else? He's trying to get them to calm down towards the brother that was the offender in this, who was the ringleader. Forgive him. If I've forgiven them anything, you need to forgive him. So he wouldn't be extolling their outrage toward him if he was the ringleader that led them to do this. But they have indignation towards their own sin. Now they hate what they once loved, what they once protected, hanging Paul out to dry. Now they hate that. They, They have a disdain for what they had done. So repentance evidences a radical change of mind towards sin. Do you guys see this? It's a radical change of mind towards sin. Where there was once a love to leave Paul out. Now there's outrage over that indignation that they did it and that's about a radical change as you can undergo indignation reveals repentance as long guys as long as there remains a secret aching for the sin within true repentance will be delayed okay so when you feel like oh man i just just, I just want that. I know I shouldn't, but I, I want it. I just I crave it. And that's where you need to just do business with the Lord and just lay it out in the open before Him. And say, this is pathetic. This is embarrassing. This is shameful. I should not be this way. Help me deal with this. Be merciful. Give me success in gaining indignation against my sin. Number five, my pursuit of repentance includes fear. And this is probably the one trait that um, would make you feel like this has to be vertical. All right. So let's just talk, let's just talk for a moment about the fear that is in Scripture. Obviously, let's start with the fear of God. Right. I just encourage you to go back to Proverbs, Psalms, other places to really focus in on the fear of God. 
Um, the way that I like to think about the fear of God is it is a worshipful fear of God. And there's a fear that uh, a man can have that makes you run from whatever it is you're afraid of. But the fear of God does not make the believer run from God. It makes the believer humbly pursue God in worship. It arises out of a sense of God's majestic holiness and out of a sense of the purity of his selfless love for you. Um, God is so holy, you fear wronging him. And God is so loving. He really, his innocent son suffered in my place. You are, he is so loving that you fear betraying that love. And so you are sobered fearfully into holiness. Where you had once been perhaps casual about your sin or unconcerned about your sin, where you once had no sight of God as you looked with favor and delight upon your sin, suddenly, all of a sudden, you become aware of God in an uncommon way in that moment. Finally, you see the grotesque evil that you've been trifling with. It was always that way, but now the scales have fallen off your eyes. And now you see God as you should, and now you see your sin as you should, and you fear. And you're not like those in Revelation who cry out for the rocks to fall on them and hide from God. You run to the very God that you're fearful of. It's a fear that is worshipful. It runs to God. Now, this might be what Paul's referring to here. Certainly, this vertical dimension of fear was present. You can't get to any other proper fear than through this fear. But, but what other kind of fear is there? Well, Proverbs talks about the fear of man in Acts and in the Gospel of John and other places. The, the Jews, uh, the, the people who were secretly believing in Jesus feared the Jews. Uh, and that fear of man always brings a snare. It's always put in contrast to the fear of God. And so certainly Paul would not be extolling that fear here. But is there another kind of fear? Is there another kind of horizontal fear um, that is legitimate, that, that is one to be extolled? Is there a horizontal relational fear to extol? Well, I think our text said there was. Look down at verse 15. Titus's affection abounds all the more toward you, Corinthians, as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with what? Okay, Paul's extolling that. He came, he brought truth, he brought correction, and you received him with fear and trembling. Not the fear that leads to a snare. That's not, un, that's not ungodly fear of man. That's the right kind of fear. That's a, that's a horizontal fear of another believer that resembles the way you fear God. They're not God, but you fear the dimension of breaking that relationship through your offense. So, Scott, that wasn't fear and trembling of Titus. That was a fear and trembling of what Titus represented in God Almighty. Yeah, personified in Titus. Um, you received him with fear and trembling. Paul says, you, Corinthians, received Titus. Well, what did that receiving of him look like? In fear and trembling. It was a very horizontal way of fearing. It is not to fear man in a way that it brings a trap or a snare. But it, there is a fear. Let me ask you this. Guys, do any of you, do you, do you fear sinning against your wife? Do you, do you fear sinning against your children? Do you fear sinning against your parents? Now look, you can fear that in a way that's ungodly. Don't. But you can fear in a way that it can be extolled. It's the fear of not wanting to wrong the relationship. We can have a holy fear of ruining fellowship with one another because of my sin. And I think the context is pointing to this kind of fear. It is a relational fear that does not make you run away from the one that you've offended, but it makes you run to your brother to reconcile. I, I fear what I've done to our relationship. Let's make this right. Fear reveals this kind of repentance. If, if you've sinned against your brother and you have no fear, guys, listen, if you've sinned against your brother and you have no fear of the damage your sin caused to your fellowship, it would be difficult for you to claim that you're repentant. 
Do you understand? You should be fearful of the damage your sin can do to your relationship with others. Does that include fear of God in it? Absolutely, completely. And it expresses itself in a horizontal fear, fear as well. Number six, my pursuit of repentance, repentance includes longing. What longing, Paul says? Go back up to verse seven. Um, we were comforted not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforting you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for who? Me. You're longing for me. You're mourning for me. Your zeal for me. So I think this is a horizontal longing that they now have. It's evidence of their repentance. It is to be positively drawn toward Paul. They now desired Paul. They desired reconciling with him. They yearned for Paul now. It's a strong, positive affection and attraction. They no longer wanted to stand off from them. They no, wanted, no longer wanted to withhold themselves from him. They were not keeping themselves at a distance from him any longer. They were longing for him, and that longing reveals repentance. So, men, don't be satisfied with a repentance does that, that does not bring affection for the one that you're reconciling with. When you reconcile with your wife, reconcile to the point that you, you have affection for her. You long for her. Don't stop until you do. But there was even more than this longing. There was zeal, verse 11. And again, this is a horizontal zeal. You had zeal for me. And so then he picks it up and he says, what zeal that was for me goes beyond longing. They were stirred up to even greater fervor for Paul to give evidence of their repentance. It's an intense desire. They were zealous to comply with anything more that could put their relationship with Paul on more solid ground. So they did not just turn from their sin. They're not just turned toward Paul. They don't just long for Paul, but they are actually zealous for Paul and their relationship with him. Zealous to remove every obstacle between them and Paul. Zeal reveals repentance. <coughs> Number eight, my pursuit of repentance includes avenging of wrong. Verse 11. What avenging of wrong? Um, that's another way of describing the repentance in the relationship. Um, Avenging of wrong. I just read in Numbers 35 this morning the, the city's refuge. And if you accidentally killed a, a, a family member of another family, you fled uh, for the city of refuge uh, so that the avenger could not get you. That's a violent thing they're after you for. It's a hostile thing, avenging. Um, and that is what's going on here. So what are they um, hostile in action toward? Again, it must be themselves. It must be themselves. And the wrong that they had done against Paul. Uh, perhaps this avenging of wrong is an, an outgrowth or an expansion or a combination of both the prior ones of the indignation and vindication. What do you get when you're mad about your sin and you want to clear your name? You avenge the wrong that you've done. They Get this. They wanted to avenge what they had done. Listen, guys, that's when you know you're repentant. When you're done defending yourself, when you're done trying to protect yourself, when you're done pitying yourself, and rather you're going to avenge the wrong that you've done. Listen, they're ready for justice. They're ready to bring justice down, even though it's going to come down on their own heads. That's repentance. That's uncommon. That's repentance. The avenging of wrong reveals repentance. Number nine, my pursuit of repentance includes innocence. I think this is the crowning description at the end. They'd only been guilty. How can they be innocent of the matter? Look what Paul says in verse 11. Um, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be guilty in this matter. You idiots, you knuckleheads. Look what you did. I came to you. You left me out hanging dry. And I wrote you a letter. And But that's not what he said. In everything, you proved yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now, Paul does not mean, look, you guys actually didn't do that. I, 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 mis, I misspoke. I misunderstood. He's not saying you never did it. They were guilty. But what does Paul mean here? A fresh start has come. A fresh start has come. The guilt is gone, and they are walking now in the relationship with Paul in innocence as far as he is concerned. Are they guilty? Was there guilt? Yes. But Paul says, 
You're innocent now. You're innocent in the matter. You see, guys, repentance does this. It brings a new day of relational innocence. And this, this says a lot about them, but it, but it says actually probably in all honesty more about Paul than it says about them. It says so much about the forgiving man that he was. Paul wasn't unnecessarily holding their guilt against them. He wasn't ruthlessly holding their guilt against them. He wasn't putting them in some kind of a submission hold so that they would tap out or cry uncle. He's not extracting a pound of flesh. He isn't mercilessly sifting them. He's not ripping the band-aid off again and again and again. He's not analyzing their deficiencies ad nauseum. What is he doing? He's living by the principle in James 2, verse 13, that judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen, if anybody had reason to be judgingly discerning against them, it's Paul, and he chose to be merciful once he heard that they had responded to what he said. And he declared them innocent. Wow. Have you ever been like that? When somebody sinned against you? Isn't that the way the Lord Jesus is with you and me? Ah, we need to be this way with one another. We need to be this way. And that doesn't mean there's no correction yet to come. I mean, you can read chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and there's still some pretty crazy words coming from Paul towards them to correct them. But this means two things can be true at the same time, that Paul believes they are repentant and that a new day of innocence has begun with him. And number two, they still need to be corrected. Those two things are possible. And all of these nine displays of expressions of repentance in relational conflict, they all demonstrate that when there is conflict in a relationship, the thing you do in repentance is you step towards the one you offended, not away. You go make it right. Did not Jesus say this? Leave your gift at the altar, go reconcile, and then come back and worship. That means it's a hindrance to your worship, isn't it? That is how you'll know when you are repentant in a broken relationship. To, to claim repentance, but then to kind of withdraw from the person or keep distance from that brother or sister, that requires some careful heart searching still, because that's not what's going on. Now, how do you even, as a believer, how do you even get this kind of repentance? And I, we're not going to get through, I'll just blow through these quickly. But you need to think on each one of these. The reason you can practice this kind of repentance is because of what God has provided. You practice because God provided. You can do this kind of repentance because of what God has done. Okay? He, what has he provided for you so you can repent? Reigning grace. Romans 5. Go back and review. Um, this kingly reigning grace is what powerfully broke you free from that sinful slab of solidarity you were in with everybody else in sin and the reign of grace broke you free from that and that reign of grace puts you in solidarity with Jesus Christ now and his people if that reigning kingly power of grace did that for you it can do that for you in repentance what you need you are not under law you are under grace Romans 6 so you need to plead for this grace you need to plead for a greater awareness of it a desire for it you need to pray for God's grace to grant you success in your repentance. Repentance will be impossible if you will not access this reigning power of grace. What about growing faith? That's Romans 3 and 4. Uh, not just saving faith, you know, the, the kind of faith that is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is, we need that. But we are not just, we call ourselves believers, right? And when we say that, we don't mean that I believed once and I don't believe anymore. We continue to believe. Help me in my unbelief. Um, we need to continue to be growing in this faith, um, a growing entrustment of yourself to Jesus that his commands are right for you. If his commands say to leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile, I have to believe him on that to go do it. I won't go do it unless I believe him. There has to be a growing faith at the very bottom of your obedience to him. Re repentance will be impossible if you will not entrust yourself to your Savior to repent. 
And if you have growing faith, you need a growing distrust. That's Romans 7. You need to think of this as the other, as the other side of the coin of faith. Uh, it's distrust in the combination of your weak flesh and the sham power of law-keeping as a power. You put your flesh and law-keeping as a power together and you get disaster. So you don't have any trust. When you think about repenting, you don't think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to grab some law-keeping power and I'm going to put my flesh with that. I'm going to fight my way out of this wet paper bag. You ain't going anywhere. You have to have a distrust in that, a growing distrust in the combination of your flesh and law-keeping power. Number four, you, what has God provided? Union with Christ. This is Romans 6. You have been crucified with Christ. You have been buried with Christ. You have been raised up with Christ to walk in newness of life. And repentance lies out in front of that one. You, have, you are now walking in newness of life, and one of the tools along the way for you to pick up is biblical repentance. And you can because you walk in that newness of life. So you need to declare this to yourself. You need to consider this to be true, Romans 6. Why else can you repent? Because God has provided you his indwelling Holy Spirit. That's Romans 8. By his power, you can put to death the deeds of the body, and repentance comes through that. So you cry out to the Spirit for help. You cry out to him for power, for comfort. You cry out to him for success in your fight to repent. Repentance will come no other way. God has also provided for you the Word of God. Write down 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, this word of God performs its work in you who believe. Praise God, that's what you come to. You spend time in the word of God so that it can accomplish its work in you. That's how you can repent, because the word of God is working in you. Write down 1 Peter 2.2. 1 Peter 2.2, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. This word that you long for will help you grow and practice repentance and lastly you have a god who will finish what he started philippians 1 6 he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of christ jesus philippians 2 verses 12 to 13 for it is god who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure guys how can you not repent how can we not repent when we have this provision from god we have this reigning grace, growing faith, a growing distrust in ourselves and in the law. We have, a, we have union with Christ and indwelling Holy Spirit, the word of God. And we have God himself committed. Guys, we can repent of our sin. Have hope. No matter what it is in front of you, you can repent if you're a believer in Jesus Christ because God has provided these. So when you're ready to repent, when you know that you need to repent, you start with number two. And you think through all of these provisions from God. And then you practice repentance. Okay? Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have given to us everything that we need and more. There is no God like you. No one compares. Thank you for being so rich and so abundant. You are not stingy with what you have given to us. And as men who believe you and who are enjoying the salvation that you've given to us, Lord, we have hope that we can actually repent of our sin today. This is the day that you've given to us, Lord, and I just pray for us that if there is sin that we know we need to repent of, that, Lord, we would today by these provisions you have given to us. Oh, how that would be pleasing to you, how it would glorify your Son, how it would make your name be seen to be the great name that it is. And yes, how it would make us sorrowful and how it would humble us, but, Lord, we would have joy and we would have no regrets for turning from our sin. Lord, I pray that you would help any one of my brothers here to realize he has no regrets if he will turn from his sin. He will not lose anything if he turns from his sin, but he will only gain, and he will have reason to rejoice even in his sorrow. We need you desperately, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.